Well, hello, everyone. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. And if you're like, man, that was a really good story. I want to hear the rest of it. We have time after. We have the chili cook-off tonight, like Brian so wonderfully demonstrated to us. Um, but it's great to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Sarah. I get to be one of the pastors here at Calvary Young Adults. And it's really fun to see some faces come back. Welcome home. If you're back from college or visiting, can you give a little like shout? I won't make a sound. Yeah, wow. There's a lot. There's a lot of people. I was like, no way, you're here. Um, so if I'm like oh, in the middle of my sermon, that's that's what's happening. But I'm really glad to be with you. Like Brian said, it's almost Christmas, which is always a little nuts this time of year. Um, it's not this weekend, but it is next weekend. And as I was thinking about it, I so I completely used to like be a Christmas hater. Like not not the actual like Jesus coming to this earth, but like. I just didn't like the holiday season because I would get sick during Christmas like every year. If you're that type of person, I'm so sorry for your immune system. But I just like didn't have any happy memories of Christmas. So even like the twinkling lights, I was like, wow, everyone's getting all dolled up for the holidays. And I'm in bed watching another claymation, um, which again, I like I rewatched it after a good like 15 years with my family. And it was like healing for me because I was actually well. Um, but I was considering what the Christmas season is, and now that I'm a little less cynical, I enjoy things like the lights, or if you grew up like in a more traditional church, you know, the stained glass, and it displays these images of Christmas almost all year long. Uh, we go to the store and you see these porcelain sets that depict the nativity scene, which is just the birth of Jesus with his parents. I think we have this tendency of almost um, over-glorifying what that day was. I don't mean in the sense of the divinity of Christ entering this world as the Son of God, but we kind of euphemize or glaze over what Christmas was. And I think it's funny this time of year because there's this great paradox of we trim the tree and we put the lights up, but then we consider what Christmas was actually like, and it was very different, right? We go from this extraordinary time of year where there's magic in the air and you're thinking about Rockefeller Center, everyone's ice skating, but that really stemmed from a quite ordinary experience from two ordinary people who are given this extraordinary call or promise from God. And what kind of made me think of this was I have my favorite nativity set that I got a couple years ago. And it looks like this. It's very plain. Um, I got it actually here at the Journey Bookstore. It looks like I like assembled it from like the beaches of Ventura. But essentially, it's made out of driftwood. <laughs> I'm not that crafty. But I put it in my room kind of as this reminder of the humility of what Christmas actually is. Because when I think about Christmas now, despite all the lights and the preparation, bless you, and, and the cookies and the decorations, I actually usually think the word humility. And I think of not something extraordinary, but something really ordinary, intersecting with the extraordinary nature of God. And this is where we get the term incarnate from. Like, which actually just means in the flesh. So the divinity of God came down and actually mingled with something very ordinary, the flesh, to produce something extraordinary. And this is kind of a, a way that God works often. He in his holiness, in his majesty, comes and he partners with the ordinary in order to make something beautiful that we can never achieve on our own. Because the truth is, when we reflect on the birth of Jesus, especially when we look at the lives of his parents, we actually see a deeper truth in what it meant to partner with God in that moment. So when we consider tonight, one thing I just want to start with is this. 
I believe that the best work God does is through ordinary people who are willing to respond to his extraordinary call. So we're going to tell a story tonight, and it might be really familiar to you. It's going to come out of Luke 1. Every week we've kind of gone backwards, right? We started uh, with the story of Anna, and then we went to Simeon. So we're kind of traveling back to the beginning of Luke. And we're going to be looking at the ver- Luke 1, verses 46 through 55, and this is Mary's song. But before we get there, I actually just want to do kind of a, like a thought experiment and use our imagination a little bit. And I want us to step into the text and into the context of what's leading up to this moment of praise and declaration. Because I believe that what makes certain things extraordinary, especially in scriptures, when we consider their ordinary circumstances and what happens when the divine actually comes into the humble. So I'm going to need your help. There's like a part for the guys and there's a part for the girls. And all it's going to require for you is a little bit of imagination and a little bit of active listening. Are we down? Yeah, captive audience, okay. So anyways, first up, ladies, this is for you. And I just want you to imagine, and guys, you can imagine the mind of Mary as well, but for you ladies, I want you to imagine this. So this, this is you. This is probably a picture of what Mary most looked like. We've seen lots of depictions of maybe not the proper ethnicities of what Jesus and his parents looked like. But Mary, um, this is you. You're in your early teens, you're in the Middle East, and you're born to a family with very little money in a place that very few people care about. In fact, you have a faith that your current government sees as threatening and has actually forced your people into submission. Things aren't really going well in that way, and it's actually hard on your family, but in the area you're at, no one's really been rocking the boat, so you feel like things are somewhat stable and you still get to go to temple every day and worship your God, this God of Israel. But when you do, when you're out in public, you have to be really careful to pay respect to the king and the emperor. See, there's no possibility for you as a woman at this time to advance your career or your education. Really, your only hope of social advancement is marriage. And this is just the custom at the time. This is the culture. This is the natural next step. So you're not going to marry for love but you trust your family and you trust the insight of the local church, which would probably help you pick out a partner. And they found a man for you who they say is righteous, which means he knows how to follow God's commands. He's a good man. And you might even be a little bit excited for this next step. And despite all the rockiness, you know that God has been faithful to you. So as you're looking ahead, you're asking yourself, what could be different? How would God not be faithful in this next step? Okay, now men. I need your help. I'm going to reach into your minds a little bit. This is you. You're Joseph. And you're in your, like, late 20s, maybe mid-30s. History's not really sure. You're older. (laughs) You're older than Mary. Um, And you've also grown up in a place that very few people actually care about. But ironically for you, your family line used to be really well-known. But the current powers at B don't recognize this even though you were actually related to royalty at one time. In fact, your people are seen as less than the Roman citizens that hold power over you, even though you're a descendant of a king. But you've made the most of your time and you've gotten really excellent at a craft. See, you are a stonemason, which means you go into the local quarries outside of Nazareth, which is in Israel, and you cut limestone. And there's a super high demand for this in your area because almost every structure is made out of stone. It's really hard work, but it allows for you to provide and actually keeps you strong. And you've earned a really good reputation in your community for being a man who upholds God's commands. 
Because of this, a local family approaches you about marrying their daughter. And the priest approves, so you're set to wed. And everything's going according to plan. Until one night, your wife-to-be is winding down for bed at her parents' house, and this happens. So ladies, I'm going to need your help one more time. You're spending time with the Lord, or just dozing off to bed, and then suddenly you wake up to this. Not Joseph. (laughs) That would be quite the plot twist. No. That's the whole point. You're not waking up to your husband. You're waking up to an angel. (laughs) And you're like we've said before, I feel like every time I preach, I'm like, I don't know why it's a common theme to be like, angels are not chubby babies. They're scary. Um, And I'm not here to argue what Gabriel looks like. There's a lot of like AI is really popular right now. Like not gonna lie, I totally did the trend. But there's all these like AI images of like angels that just look like eyeballs on hula hoops. And they're like, this is what revelation actually is. I am, I'm not gonna claim what Gabriel looked like, but I'm saying that he was heavenly and powerful, which means he came in light, he came in authority. And Mary, as a mere fleshy human, was scared and she was confused. And in scripture, it actually says something along the lines of she paused to consider whether this visit was gonna be a very good thing or a very bad thing. (laughs) And I know this too, because Gabriel, the angel, literally had to tell Mary not to be afraid. So this is also how we know the angels are scary, like context clues. This was his greeting to her. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And I don't know about you ladies, but I don't know if I'd be more shocked at the fact that an angel knew my name or that the words he was saying to me were that the Lord of the universe, this God that I've grown up with and worshiped every day with my family has looked at me, a teenager from nowhere that has no upward mobility or no nobility and he's found favor with me. And I'm not sure if she understood at first what she was hearing But he goes on to say this. He has good news for Mary. It's not just that the Lord has found favor on her, but to the point where I quote, the Lord wanted to entrust his literal child to her, not given to her through Joseph, her husband-to-be, but through the spirit of God in some mystery, the Holy Spirit says would overshadow her. And then she would become pregnant with a son and his name would be Jesus. And this Jesus would be the savior of not only the people, her people of Israel, but the whole world. He would come to restore honor to her, to her family, the downtrodden, and the oppressed. And she's never seen anything like this before. As long as she's lived, she's only known hardship. And she's heard the prophecies, because if you go through scripture in the Old Testament, there's prophecies of the coming of this Messiah, the Savior, where the government would rest on his shoulders. He'd be a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, and people were looking for this king to release them from bondage, specifically the bondage of the Roman Empire. And then you also have to think about this, as she's hearing these words that she would become pregnant, she had to know that people were going to have a hard time believing her especially her fiance. And yet, this is what she said. Imagine this is your response in that moment. She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel left. And then she's left with her yes. All she's left with is her yes to God. This incredible moment where heaven literally comes down to earth, gives her this radical promise, and she says, okay, let it be to me according to your world, and then he's gone. And she's alone 
with her yes, the same yes her fiance Joseph would eventually give after Gabriel then had to confront him, clear some things up, um, make sure that he believed not only Mary, but more importantly, God himself. You see, this is what we learned from Mary. This is where we're gonna begin. And what we hear later in her song, and it's this, is that ordinary people who are willing to respond to an extraordinary call from God already have a yes in their hearts. See, when God came with an assignment for Mary, she had a yes in her heart. She already trusted God and was ready to say yes to what he was asking of her before she knew what it was. And when we peer into Mary's heart in a special way, when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, we begin to hear the words of her praise. And this leads us to understand what that actually means. What does it actually mean for us to have a yes in our heart to God? So here's what happens. Mary gets this news that she's become pregnant with the little Lord of the universe. And one of the first things she decides to do was to go travel to see her cousin Elizabeth. Now, what she doesn't know is that Elizabeth is also pregnant. So her story is they're of older age. She and her husband, Zechariah, he goes to the temple. An angel of the Lord appears to him and says, you're going to have a baby. He doesn't really believe it. Then he goes mute. Um, So he's given all this prophecy about the coming Messiah and his son. Uh, But then Elizabeth, in her old age, is pregnant. She's about six months pregnant. And because they live far apart, and this is the ancient Near East, they don't have cell phones, they don't have carrier pigeons, she does not know that Mary is pregnant. But when Mary comes into the room, and she's like freshly pregnant by the Holy Spirit, um, her Elizabeth's baby actually leaps in her womb. Like, I I don't know if you've had any pregnant friends where it's like you feel the baby and it kicks and you're like, there's something inside of you. This is wild. But like she, like the baby recognizes that there's something inside of Mary. And what's crazy is if you know anything about the scriptures, Elizabeth's actually pregnant with John the Baptist. In fact, it took me a little too long, I have to admit, like even going through seminary to be like, oh yeah, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. Like they're cousins. And John the Baptist, actually, his assignment on his life is to go before Jesus and to go tell people that he is coming, that the prophecies in the scriptures that they've been hearing for years and years and years and waiting on are about to come true. And later on, what we see is actually Jesus gets to be baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. So these two have a very special relationship. But what's more miraculous to me in this moment is that John recognizes Jesus in the womb and then Mary, or Elizabeth recognizes the call that Mary has answered. And this is what it says. When Elizabeth sees Mary, she declares this in faith. She says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from God. Like how amazing she was like, Mary, you're blessed. Like blessed is you that you have faith that what God has spoken to you is actually come to pass. She could discern Mary's yes even before either of them could see the promise. And from the overflow of Mary's heart, we hear what it means to have a yes ready for the Lord. Because after Elizabeth greeted her, Mary began to sing, like she spontaneously combusted in song, which I get not in fire, in song. Um, is probably not the correct use of that term. But the only other time we see this in scripture, aside from the Psalms, is with a woman named Hannah. And that's when she is told that her son is going to have a special call, and his name is Samuel. So we see these moments where people are so overwhelmed with the goodness and presence of God that they actually can't help it but to sing. And this is what Mary sang. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What do we learn from this? What do we learn from the first words that come out of Mary's mouth? I would say it's this, it's that your yes to God is not based on your worthiness. See, in fact, she is rejoicing in the fact that she was of humble position. When it says humble estate, it's not talking about the type of house she lived in, though that was humble too. It means that her very being was humble, that she didn't consider herself worthy to be chosen by God or put favor upon, but in fact, that she was overflowing from this place of knowing that she was unlikely. She was underqualified, that God rested his favor upon her. He didn't reward her merit. She was so unlikely that generations to come would recognize what a gift it was to be given this favor by God. See, Mary's song today is known as the Magnificat, which is just Latin for magnification. And I love that because even though Mary is seen by God, it's not about how great she is, but how great God will be in and through her, that he will be magnified through Mary and her saying yes. And I think sometimes in church, like I, I grew up in the Catholic church, and we see this and we see it a little bit backwards because I think we can worship people like Mary and others in the Bible, or at least idolize them, because we think they have this exceptional merit, that of course God would use them, because she was pure and she was righteous and she had to be without flaw or some sort of perfect record. And Mary was righteous, yes, we could discern that from clues in the text. But here's the thing, like us, only God can make us worthy through his love. It's not our actions. It's not that Mary kept this perfect vector and suddenly God's like, yes, you. Therefore, our ability to say yes to God can never be based on how worthy we are outside of him. It's only because he makes us worthy and he rests his favor upon us and that is good news. That is such good news. And she ends it this way. If we go back to verse 49, she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Again, it's not the other way around. It's he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And we've talked about this before. Holy isn't his name. And holy just means whole. It means he is wholly good. He is wholly powerful. He alone is wholly pure, wholly mighty. And that's just in his name. Imagine in his whole being. He has done great things for me. Again, not the opposite way around. And the truth is what we see in scripture, again, that Mary was not extraordinary by the world's eyes, but she was obedient. And obedience to God is extraordinary in his eyes. And he invites us into an extraordinary call in our lives through the yeses that we get to say in response to him. And we can look at Mary and not be inspired by some sort of imperfect righteousness, but to be obedient like her. So secondly, your yes to God is not based on what you can offer God. It's not based on what you can offer God. Mary's saying he has done great things. There is nothing you can truly offer God in word or deed aside from your obedience to him. As we were praying tonight out in our, in our prayer team beforehand, um, I love what my friend Carly said. She was talking about basically like, thank you God for the available hearts. Thank you, Lord, for those who are making their hearts available. And I think that hit the nail on the head because that's truly what he wants. He does not want your platform. He does not want your level of income. He does not want your social status or even a perfect history or right behavior. He wants your will. Yeah. He wants your hearts. 
And that's the only thing you could actually really choose to give him is that willing obedience to say, God, I know I'm not perfect, but I want you. I want what you have for me and I want what you have for those around me. And I'm willing to say yes, because like Mary, we can't always offer our wealth or status or influence, but we can offer our yes to him. He wants your yes and your willingness to obey him no matter the cost. So what else do we see in her song? And I'll just state this more plainly. Your yes to God results in praise to God. Like Mary said yes to God and it wasn't just this like downhill like (laughs) spiral. She's telling people, people are recognizing the faithfulness in her and what happens, it results in praise of him. It's this overflowing praise. And Mary had every reason to lament, right? She was an unmarried virgin who is now pregnant. That is a huge social no-no. Like not today in our culture, like that would might be shameful, but for her, that could actually merit death. But ultimately, beyond that, she was poor. She was a victim of prejudice. Her people, the Jewish people, were under persecution. Her family's name and reputation was on the line, and she still said yes. And because of her yes, like think about this, we get to praise God for delivering on his promise today. Like we get to talk about this, we get to sing about this mighty God and we get to tell the story of Mary because she said yes despite all those things. And I love it because our yeses to the Lord, this is what Mary is proving even in the, in the company of Elizabeth, our yeses to the Lord, are, they're contagious. They're contagious like that, just like our praise when we praise God, that's contagious. It's inviting the presence of God. It's testifying to the truth of God. And it's bringing people along with us. So Mary says this, in addition to holy, this is what she knew to be true of God. This is what she continues to sing. She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, Mary is looking back in remembrance of what God has done, not only for her, but for her people as a whole. See, the history of God's character, and something she's pointing out is God is not just for the mighty and the powerful and strong, but he's there for the humble, He's there who looked to God and said, Lord, I need you to feed me, whether that's spiritually or whether that's physically. He is merciful. He is strong. He is sovereign above. He scatters the proud, meaning he is in charge. He is ultimately above every social dynamic, every hierarchy, every matriarchy, patriarchy. Like he is above it all and he could bring them down from their power at his command. But in that too, in that power and might, he is compassionate. Like we see God again and again elevating the broken and the humble. And he's provider. He's provider. Again, he meets both spiritual and physical needs of hunger. And Mary doesn't just praise God for herself again individually. I think it's really easy to look at this and be like, of course she's happy. Like God has given her this great gift. But she's in this mindset right now where she understands what this means collectively for the nation of Israel. And even beyond that, how God's mercy and salvation will extend to all people through Jesus. And she gets to be a part of God's great promise, even to us sitting here today. 
Like Mary was praising God for things she didn't fully understand, but we are still reaping the benefit of that. So again, your yes to God comes from a history of his faithfulness that informs your future. That is how we can confidently say yes to God. And you see Mary, again, she had decided her life was about serving the Lord before the angel appeared to her. Serving the Lord has to do first with valuing the Lord and then others and then yourself. And we see that Mary understands that even in her praise, it's about God, it's about her people, then it's about her. Because the truth is the birth of Jesus wasn't gonna immediately benefit her. In fact, it would bring her a lot of tension and pain, like quite literally. Because what happens in this time is Mary and Joseph actually had to flee Nazareth because there's this king named Herod. And it wasn't just the Jewish people that heard of these prophecies of this coming king. Herod heard about them too. And he was starting to get insight like that, wow, this child might be born soon. So what does he do? He declares this edict that all the firstborn sons of a certain region would be killed. So Mary and Joseph actually threatened by this, decide to flee. So now they are on the road, they are poor, she is very pregnant, and they have people literally after them for the child. So they're on the run, and they run to Bethlehem. Again, poor, pregnant, and probably a little bit scared. But they knew the Lord. And what meant most to Mary was to please God's heart and see the promise of his salvation come for his people. So when the assignment came to Mary, this grand assignment, and then to Joseph, she already had a yes in her heart. And I just wanna challenge us too, like when God comes with an assignment for us to make disciples, which is if you know Jesus for everyone, even when people fail or it's uncomfortable, an assignment to wait and be present in the season like we've talked about the past couple weeks, even when you'd rather be in the season of the person around you the assignment to pursue that calling or career, even if it's not what you pictured for yourself, the assignment to enter that relationship, even though you have past pain and hurt, the assignment to end that relationship, even though you can't see the future and that really scares you, and ultimately the assignment to obey God, even if it's not, even if it's newer to you or if it's not popular to those around you. You see, God has an assignment on our lives to bring healing to a broken world through prayer, through the word of God, through the laying of hands, the calling on the spirit to bring hope to our neighbor. This can be something as simple as an invitation to a meal this, this holiday season, or even just stopping with someone long enough to listen to their hearts and speak the name of Jesus into their fears. We have an assignment on our life as the people of God. And the truth of it is this, that we can say yes despite the unknown of the future because we can look back on the history of God in our lives. And if you're new to this, and if you don't have a history of God, here's the good news. You can start one. Like, you can start a history of God tonight. You can say, Lord, I want to see your faithfulness in my life. Or would you even give me eyes to see where you were? Because the truth is, God is always there. We're just not always willing. We're not always willing. We're not always even awake to the fact that the Lord of the universe has been pursuing us this entire time. So if you have a history with God, I just want to encourage you, even this holiday season, like, Take time to look back. Take time to praise God for how he's delivered you through hardship, for how he's brought you joy and suffering, for comfort in your grief. Remind yourself of the character of God as you look forward to what he's asking you to do. And if you don't have a history with God, start one. And if you're still unsure of what that looks like, read the scriptures because there's a whole history of God's faithfulness to his people. 
Like Mary wasn't there when he was faithful to Abraham, but she can call on the character of God because she said, that's my same God. And that's actually when we talk about like what the spirit of prophecy is. It just means looking back on the character of God and understanding it's gonna be true of him in the future. So when we declare the truth of God, we know that it's trustworthy and it's good. And finally, we know that God, like his heart towards Mary, already has yes in his heart towards us. Romans 5, 8 reminds us, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That little bundle of flesh and divine promise that Mary had carrying in her womb and then grew to walk this earth with ordinary sinners was meant to bring wisdom and correction to the spiritual authorities of the time, but also to heal the sick and set those in bondage free. And ultimately, Jesus took the punishment for our brokenness overcame death, rose again so that you may know life and life abundantly. See, he came and died and conquered the grave so we may know and share his great love, his great yes towards his people. Even those who don't know that God has a yes for him, especially those who don't know that God has a yes in his heart for them. So we're called into this life of yes because we know that he's gonna be with us, to be with us in obedience to him through his spirit, to never leave us or hang us out to dry in our moment of need, to have his goodness and his mercy follow us all the days of our life, to uphold his people by his strength, and that he with his yes will make good on his promises. So the last place we can sit and rest in when we consider what it doesn't mean to have a yes in our heart to God is this foundational truth that your yes to God is made possible by his yes to you. It just would not exist without that. And this is our great assurance because Mary gave the Lord her best yes, her whole life of obedience before the individual assignment was even completed. And from the overflow of her heart, she sang a new song to the Lord. And I'm gonna invite our band back up because what we see in Mary is that she's saying to remind not only her soul, but her people and us here today of God's great faithfulness to complete his yes. For the extraordinary call in our life is this. It's to trust God and to be led by his spirit, to see his people come full into hope and healing and newness and come alive here and now on this side of eternity. You see, we've already sung some of these songs, but like Mary, our worship team has experienced the faithfulness of God. They're ordinary people like you and I and Mary, but from an overflow of their hearts, they've written songs that speak of God's character and his word to remind our souls of who we are saying yes to. So as we consider, as you consider tonight, just specific areas of obedience in your life, the things that you're being called to, even if, even if that's just to go and be with the Lord himself, we get to sing these songs like Mary because we believe them. Because we believe them, we worship God with our yes by agreeing with who he is through our praise and worship. So let's bring our minds, attentions, and our hearts, affections back to the Lord and sing a new song, literally a new song with him together tonight. So Lord God, we just thank you that you are kind. Lord, we thank you, God, that because of your yes, we can be obedient and faithful. Thank you, Lord, that like Mary, you have great things for us. And God, we just thank you for the example of Mary and her song, Lord, just to know that you are good and we love you.